0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Sophie Lanscron, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, in the eastern United States. Sophie completed her undergraduate work at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, where she obtained a bachelor's degree in biology. She continued her education for her medical degrees at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. Her training then took her to Baltimore, where she stayed first as a resident in internal medicine at the University of Maryland Medical System, and then as a fellow in hematology at the aforementioned Johns Hopkins. Since 1994, Sophie has published over 100 original research papers, as well as numerous review articles, case reports and book chapters and has also been co-editor for a book and her expertise has led her to be interviewed by the Baltimore Sun News and the Washington Post. Sophie also sits on a number of medical boards and committees and has been chair of the patient engagement committee for the American Society of Hematology's Sickle Cell Clinical Trials Network for the past three years. Her research focus is on sickle cell disease where she's looking for innovative approaches to improving quality of care for adults with this condition, among other topics that I'm hoping we should be able to discuss. Not surprisingly, Sophie has been honored, including the Unsung Hero Award of the William E. Proudford Sickle Cell Fund in 2007, and the Dr. Susan M. McDonnell Sponsorship Award for Excellence in Sponsoring the Advancement of Women Faculty in 2021. Sophie has been married to a nephrologist for 32 years and has what she describes as two semi-adult sons, I'm a bit intrigued by that, as well as two dogs. In her admittedly limited free time, she enjoys puzzles, reading, and going on holiday to the quiet, peaceful lake not far from where she lives. And I know the lake that she refers to, and it is indeed a gorgeous spot. Dr. Sophie Lansgren, welcome to the EMJ podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So let's start at uh, the beginning of your amazing career. Who or what was it that inspired you to work in hematology and more specifically to focus on sickle cell disease?
1: So my interest in hematology really started when I was a medical student doing an elective. We were in the Bronx, New York in this sort of underserved hospital and the the hematology fellow came running in as excited as anyone could possibly be in medicine with this case. And he, he had a blood smear and we all looked at the blood smear together and it was a case of TTP. And to me, the simplicity of making that diagnosis, you, you gather history, you look at a blood smear and, it, and it's right there. And the blood smear is beautiful and you see schistocytes and right, this is not not terribly difficult diagnosis to make. And the need to act quickly, think quickly, and get the job done, or else the patient dies, uh, was all very appealing to me, and that sort of started me on the path to hematology. And then, as uh, my my desire had always been to take care of an underserved population of patients um, and really give back and and make people's lives better. And Sam Sharash was at Hopkins when I was doing my fellowship, and to me the the clinic that he had and the relationship with his patients was exactly what I knew that I wanted to have, that long-term relationship with patients, um, really helping to fill a niche where there wasn't, where there weren't enough people taking care of this population. And sickle cell disease, there are lots of social determinants of health that have to be overcome. But the pathophysiology, the fact that it affects every organ in the body and that you really have to know your medicine was also really appealing to me. And so over the last 20 years, I've really had the opportunity to grow with my patients. I I know about their kids. They know about my kids who, after your introduction, will probably never forgive me. But that was the kind of relationship that I wanted to have with patients. Uh, And so it's really been very satisfying. And I, I love I love my clinic and uh, and the patients I have the privilege to take care of.
0: Yeah, I, I have to say, of all the the marvelous blessings that one has in medicine, having having those those friendships with patients and being a, an intimate part of their lives is is immensely satisfying. So, Sophie, the vast majority of our audience are healthcare practitioners, but we also have interested lay people listening in. I remember when I first met a lovely patient in in America suffering with sickle (laughs) and called it sick as hell disease, sick as hell anemia. Assume one knows nothing. Give us the 30,000 foot view on sickle cell disease, how it affects the quality of life for patients living with this condition and the sort of patients that uh, that it does impact.
1: Sure, so sickle cell disease is due to a single base substitution of a for glutamine, it causes a change in the hemoglobin and how the hemoglobin behaves in the red cells. And what happens is those hemoglobin molecules stick together and form a polymer within the red cell. Uh, that polymer is stiff and grows and elongates within the red cell and changes the shape of the red cell, making it stiff. It can't get through blood vessels very well. That's the basic understanding. We now know that because of that change in the hemoglobin, there are a lot of downstream effects. Like the increased expression of adhesion molecules and other things that make the environment very sticky. There are really two consequences in my mind of this polymerization of that hemoglobin molecule. The first being the stiffness of the red cells, the stickiness of the environment, the inability of the blood to get through the microvasculature causing blockage of blood flow. You Don't get hemoglobin, you don't get blood flow and you get hypoxia and and injury to tissues beyond the obstruction. And Then the second consequence is really the hemolysis, the breakdown of the red cells in the vascular space. We know that 30% of the hemolysis does occur in the vascular space, and releasing hemoglobin into the vascular space is bad. Hemoglobin is meant to be inside red cells, and when it is not inside red cells, compensatory mechanisms to scavenge and get rid of all those hemoglobin is overwhelmed in people with sickle cell disease, and so they have elevated levels of plasma-free hemoglobin. And that causes significant consequences as well, including vasoconstriction, increased expression of adhesion molecules, endothelial damage, all of which can lead to lots of end organ problems.
0: So, these patients, uh, I, as I recall, suffer pa- really painful episodes and their joints, the muscles, and, and damage to pretty much every organ, right?
1: Right. The major complication of sickle cell disease is really these excruciating painful events due to the blockage of blood flow, these basal occlusive episodes. And they can progress, or people can also develop acute chest syndrome, which is another life-threatening complication of the disease, multi-system organ failure acutely can happen as well. It really does affect every organ in the body. People can get leg ulcers, they can have strokes, especially as children, they can have strokes. Uh, people can have silent cerebral infarcts, which affects their executive function over time. We think 50% of adults potentially have had silent cerebral infarcts, uh, it causes kidney damage, pulmonary hypertension, liver damage, all of this over the course of a lifespan. And we know that people with the most severe form, hemoglobin SS disease, have a decreased life expectancy of about 25 years shorter than the general population.
0: Yeah, truly miserable. And your point about needing to know your medicine is, is, is bang on target. So you recognize that hydroxyurea was not efficient in real world settings as it's underutilized. Tell us the hydroxyurea story. What is it? How it works? And why perhaps it's not been used widely?
1: So hydroxyurea is a great drug in sickle cell disease. Um, it was Sam Sharash and George Dover here who really led the uh, phase three the actually only randomized controlled trial in adults comparing hydroxyurea to placebo that demonstrated that hydroxyurea decreased crisis, decreased risk of acute chest, decreased the risk of requiring a blood transfusion. That paper was published in 1995, so a long time ago. But the uptake of hydroxyurea was really slow after that. Hydroxyurea is a great drug because it, it works in multiple ways. The reason they started to use it in sickle cell disease is because it was known that it increased fetal hemoglobin. And in the presence of fetal hemoglobin, it's harder for those hemoglobin molecules to stick together and to form that polymer. And so it decreases sickling. And so that was the initial beneficial effect. But we also know that hydroxyurea lowers white counts, which we think probably play a role in vasocclusion, occlusion, also decreased adhesion molecule expression, and it is an NO donor. So it works in lots of different ways. I think there was lots of concerns early on about the use of hydroxyurea because in other populations there was some question about whether it increased malignancies. There hasn't been any good data that shows that it increases malignancies in people with sickle cell disease, potentially because they're not being treated for a pre-malignant condition, which is what the drug was used for when it did demonstrate an in- potentially an increased risk in malignancies. And that dampened the use of it. But also, as newer studies were done, mostly in children, the, the idea about who should be on hydroxyurea also changed, or the way we think about who should be on therapy. So we used to think, right, if you didn't have three crises a year, which was the enrollment criteria for the multi-center study of hydroxyurea, that maybe it, maybe it didn't need hydroxyurea, but, but our thinking has really changed. It, it is not okay to walk around with a hemoglobin of six or seven, even if your body has adapted to it. Your body probably adapted and you may be okay in your twenties, but you're not going to be okay in your thirties, forties, and fifties. having. Lots of red cell turnover over time, having a low hemoglobin over time causes organ damage. Now the recommendation is that almost everyone with hemoglobin SS disease should go on hydroxyurea, and I think uptake has really improved. It, it has improved a lot because, in, in at least in the US, a lot of pediatric hematologists are starting children at nine months of age with hemoglobin SS disease on hydroxyurea, and so now kids are growing up on hydroxyurea. They miss less school, they have they have less CNS damage, and really do better. And so now we're seeing these children who've been on hydroxyurea who, who continue to take it into adulthood. And so our attitudes towards the use of hydroxyurea has changed as clinicians, and for patients, there's, there seems to be less of barriers associated with Concerns over risk of malignancy, and
0: and if you can expand on that a bit, what led to you noting that it wasn't being effectively used in real world settings? Like, like where, how? Can you talk to us a little bit about that and the, the work you did?
1: Sure. So I was looking at hospitalizations for Maryland. I had access to data, and my expectation was is that you know after hydroxyurea got approved, it decreases hospitalizations that we should have seen a decline in hospitalizations in the state of Maryland where I was living and practicing after the approval of hydroxyurea. Um, And I didn't see that when I examined the data. And then I began to look at our own data and noted "Mm, there weren't as many people as I thought who should have been on hydroxyurea. And so that led to looking at the barriers to using hydroxyurea especially from the clinician standpoint, and other people have looked at it from the patient standpoint. And we've really changed our approach and our effort to try to get more and more people on hydroxyurea, and if not on hydroxyurea, some other disease-modifying therapy.
0: It's interesting. Changing tack slightly, you've, you've looked at the benefits of using infusion clinics to manage uncomplicated, painful sickle episodes. We've mentioned the pain that this wretched disease can cause which culminated in a multi-site study showing improved outcomes when you compared patient treatment in this setting rather than hospital emergency departments or a and as we'd call them in Britain. Tell us about this work please.
1: Yeah so in my clinic, um, not anymore, but when I started I worked in a clinic that didn't really have a nurse, it had a medical assistant and patients would come for their clinic appointments to come and see me in, in clinic. And sometimes they'd show up in excruciating pain in the midst of a crisis. I had no nurse. I couldn't give any medications. And I knew that if I sent them to the emergency department, initially it was a six hour wait. I got it down to like under three hours. But that's a long time to wait to for treatment for excruciating pain. So I'm sitting there with a patient who, right, my patient, who I'm supposed to make better, and I know I'm going to send them across the street um, to wait three hours for the first dose of pain medication. That's a really motivating afternoon in clinic to do something different. And I had lots of institutional support here at Hopkins. And Dr. Lynette Benjamin had published her experience of a day hospital in the Bronx demonstrating that she could treat people more rapidly and they had better outcomes and were less likely to get admitted to the hospital. And so with institutional support here, we started an infusion clinic and showed much the same data. There were then multiple uh, single institution studies looking at infusion clinics showing their benefit. But people were arguing that, well, maybe people who went to the infusion clinic were different than people who went to the emergency room. And that's why patients seen in the emergency room were far more likely to get admitted because they were sicker. So uh, using funding from the patient-centered research institute here uh, in the US, PCORI, and having some amazing methodologists, we designed a study across four different sites across the United States comparing infusion center outcomes to emergency department outcomes. Uh, we couldn't randomize patients because if you ask patients to be randomized to an infusion clinic or to emergency room for the care of their painful episodes, they're not going to agree to be in this study. And so we used complex propensity score modeling to make sure that we were comparing patients who had the same complexity. Uh, we only evaluated people who were coming in for uh, uncomplicated vasoclusive episodes. And with that study, we were able to demonstrate that patients seen in an infusion clinic received their first dose of pain medication 60 to 70 minutes before people in the emergency room. Um, we demonstrated that patients seen in the infusion clinic were far more likely to have their pain reassessed 30 minutes after their first dose of pain medications, which is a quality metric uh, in in published guidelines. And finally, people seen in the infusion clinic are far less likely to get admitted to the hospital than patients seen in the emergency department.
0: So so thanks for that. Another treatment for, for this condition is is blood transfusion. Tell us how blood transfusion helps patients with sickle cell disease.
1: So blood transfusions is a very effective therapy for people with sickle cell disease. So what you're doing when you're either doing a simple transfusion, which is sort of just a top-up transfusion, or an exchange transfusion, is you're decreasing the percent of hemoglobin S. And we know from a number of randomized trials, so particularly studies in children, transfusions were used to decrease the risk of stroke and transfusions were shown to be effective, in decreasing that risk. So kids get screened with transcranial dopplers and if the velocity is too high, they're put on chronic transfusion therapy and that decreases their risk of stroke. Um, A study in pregnant women comparing as needed transfusions to chronic transfusions during pregnancy demonstrated a decrease in painful events in the women who were on chronic transfusions and the same decrease in painful events was seen in those transfusion studies of children. And so it, it is a very effective therapy. If you decrease the hemoglobin S to less than 30%, our expectation is, is that patients will not have painful events or, or certainly won't have severe complications of their disease. And so in patients who can't take hydroxyurea this is our second-line therapy for many patients, is the use of chronic transfusion therapy to try and decrease the complications of the disease.
0: Okay, so um, we've talked a little bit about the implications of sickle cell anemia and that it impacts the whole body and that it's a lifelong disease and that it shortens life and leads to multiple interactions with healthcare professionals, if not hospitalizations. Can you explain the global and American prevalence of sickle cell disease and the burden that it has on healthcare systems and society?
1: Yeah, so the US, the UK are not the the place where you see most of the people living with sickle cell disease. And I wanna go back a little bit. We used to think there were four different origins of the sickle cell trait uh, 3000 years ago, but a paper published a few years back suggests that there was one origin of the gene mutation 7000 years ago. And the question is why did sickle cell trait? Why did that continue? And the reason is because it caused, it leads to a, a, an amazing survival advantage over malaria. So if you get if you have trait and you get malaria, you're far less likely to die because trait provides that protection against dying of malaria. So when you think about the millions and millions of people who survived because they had sickle trait over the last 7,000 years. It's an amazing thing, right? That gene mutation is an amazing thing and it has saved so many lives over the course of centuries. So it's great if you have one gene mutation, unfortunately, right? If you have two and you have the disease, it changes things and causes quite a burden of disease. there there was data published not too long ago that said that uh, 50,000 children die every year in Africa before the age of five due to sickle cell disease. And that's because most of the places do not have newborn screening. And even if they have newborn screening, the children don't have access to penicillin prophylaxis and vaccinations, which are the things that have led to an improved childhood survival in countries like yours and, and here in the United States. And so there's an amazing global burden of sickle cell disease. Most of that is in Africa, but it's also seen in the Middle East as well. And, you know, in our country and in yours, there, there is an enormous burden. The PCORI group that funded our original study demonstrated that if 35% of the population here in the US had access to infusion clinics, it would save $2 billion over the course of, of a decade. And so the expense associated with taking care of people with sickle cell disease is not insignificant, but it's also a real life burden where where so many lives are lost, especially in Africa, because they just don't have the resources that they need in order to to treat all of those children and identify the children who are born with this disease.
0: it's yes, fascinating. And, you know, to continue uh, with that thread, there isn't uh... There isn't a healthcare system in the world that doesn't have some form of barriers to care, whether it's doctors, proximity of, of, of medical staff, money, sometimes disease-specific barriers to, to, to care. Tell us how patients with sickle cell disease might face challenges being diagnosed and treated. And you can be specific to, to Baltimore if, that, if that's helpful.
1: Yeah, so I've sort of mentioned a problem across many parts of the world where they just don't have access to newborn screening. So in the United States, every state, your baby is born, they get newborn screening. Sickle is part of the newborn screening process. So really we shouldn't be missing anybody Uh, At this point, who was born in the United States with sickle cell disease, most of those programs do a great job in identifying babies with sickle cell disease. And then those babies are supposed to get plugged into care pretty rapidly. Unfortunately, each state is a little different about who they communicate those disease results to. We're lucky in Maryland, we have an amazing system. Every ba- baby gets recognized, they get a phone call from the state. They ensure that those kids are plugged into care with a pediatric hematologist, but that's not true everywhere in the U.S. And certainly in places where they are doing newborn screening, obviously a lot of children don't come to medical attention until it's too late or until they're having their first vasooclusive episode. And so those are major challenges. The the additional challenges in the US, so if you're a child born with sickle cell disease, you have a greater than 95% chance of surviving to adulthood, which is really terrific. And a lot of that has to do with newborn screening, penicillin prophylaxis, pneumococcal vaccinations, TCD screenings, all the things that we do. And then when you're in the pediatric world, there's a child life specialist and a social worker, they have a lot of resources. Some of them they steal from their oncology colleagues, but there are lots of resources. But then when people move from pediatric care to adult care, those resources aren't don't exist anymore. right? Mo- most of us in the adult world didn't have a social worker. I, di- I didn't even have a nurse in my clinic when I started, much less a social worker. Uh, and so that infrastructure that is so needed, it's not like just because you turn to 18, you don't don't need all of that extra support to manage your disease in your life. All those things fall away. Um, And that often we see a bump in mortality during that age group of transition. And some of that is because of lack of access of care. Some of it is related to behaviors of people who think they're going to live forever when they're 20 years old but it's complex and not having the resources, social worker, community health worker, uh, all of those pieces that wrap around care to provide, psychiatrists, psychologists, all of those things that you need to provide that care really limits patients' ability to be successful when they live with this disease. And so those are the challenges that we face in the US, which I hope are challenges that will be faced across the world when we can ensure that everyone gets identified through a newborn screening program, no matter where they live, so that they can survive to adulthood.
0: Absolutely. So uh, thinking about treatments, you developed a novel sickle cell disease healthcare delivery model that's resulted in improved care access, as well as reduced hospital admissions and readmissions, which have been replicated across the US of A. Can you talk us through that model and why it works?
1: So the main piece of that model is really the infusion clinic piece, but it's not just the infusion clinic piece. Why does an infusion clinic work? I I think there are multiple components to it. First is rapid delivery of care and pain medications, but there's more to it than that. Our model includes advanced practice providers who are skilled and very knowledgeable in how to manage people with sickle cell disease who see all of those patients who come in. So at our center, you come in and you are coming in with crisis. It's not just we hand over pain medications and off you go. It's how come you're having this painful episode? Do you have heat in your house? So you don't have heat in your house and it's 40 degrees outside or whatever, right? The social worker will then stop by and see what they can do to help with that. You didn't pick up your meds, you can't pick up your meds, you can't afford your medications. Well, here, we'll give you a voucher and make sure that happens. haven't taken your hydroxyurea. Well, how come you haven't taken your hydroxyurea in a conversation about how to improve adherence to those medications? And all of those pieces are really important and the connection and the ability to to meet patients where they are to help them improve um, and overcome some of these social departments. The determinants of health are really important. In addition, every patient who gets admitted to Hopkins with sickle cell disease is seen by a member of my team almost every day. And that too helps with continuity of care and makes sure we're consistent with the care. Each patient has a patient-specific treatment plan. Um, so if they show up in our emergency department, our emergency department uses the, the, what we consider as the appropriate pain medication and management for that patient. And we also spend a lot of time educating everyone so that everyone is using the same language uh, when they're talking to patients about their care. If we have a pain management plan that uh, is built For a patient who has lots of chronic pain and fewer acute pains, we make sure everybody's using the same language and are consistent. But having all of those resources available to patients really does help us improve outcomes. Um, And we have been able to demonstrate uh, that we have decreased readmissions. We um, have one of the lowest readmission rates across the country and looking at our peer organizations and decreased admission rates as well.
0: So as we think about treatment, blood and bone marrow transplants, gene editing? Where are we with perfecting a cure for sickle cell disease?
1: Oh, such a complex question. So here my, my boss uh, and the head of our division and currently the president of the American side of hematology, Dr. Rob Brodsky, helped develop our haplotype transplant for uh, people with sickle cell disease. It was a method they were using in malignant diseases and has been able to demonstrate that you can cure people with sickle cell disease using haplotype transplants. One of the main barriers to doing transplant was finding an exact match, which was what was necessary before this new method became available. And right, not everybody has a full match sib who could be a donor for a transplant, but now using haplotype transplants, almost everybody, has a potential donor who could be a donor for them to undergo transplant. There are still limitations. You still have to have undergo some chemotherapy and radiation, and all those things have some secondary consequences associated with doing it. There's the risk of graft rejection, and so it's you know not 100% curative in the published literature, it's about 70%. It's probably a little bit higher now as they've tweaked the protocol to cure patients with sickle cell disease. And it's a pretty remarkable thing to have an adult who's been living with sickle cell disease for 20 or 30 years then undergo transplant and be cured of their disease. And so that's an effective way of curing. And for children, the most recent sort of meta-analysis and looking at all the data from the bone marrow transplant registry here in the US, um, the most successful transplants are fully matched transplants for children under the age of 13. That seems to be where you get the best results, but things you know, are, are improving every day in these other methods of doing transplants. So hopefully transplant will open up to more people, or allogeneic transplant will open up for more people as time goes on. Gene therapy uh, is not yet appear, approved here in the United States, but we anticipate that it will be approved. It does require high-dose chemotherapy, so everybody who undergoes it will um, will lose fertility, will become infertile, which is a barrier to to doing it and requires fertility treatment prior to undergoing the procedure. It looks like it really does decrease crisis frequency and is transformative. Whether it's curative remains a question. There's still evidence of ongoing hemolysis. So, hard to really call it curative, but certainly life transformative.
0: So um, I think we're going to we're going to have to stay in touch and have you back when things are, are approved and uh, one can see the impact it has on, on, on this population. What, what areas of sickle cell disease research will be your focus in the coming years?
1: I, I'm doing ongoing work trying to implement infusion clinics across the. US. The other piece is trying to understand what standard of care should be in an infusion clinic. We all do it a little bit differently. We should all find the best practices. So having a network of infusion clinics really interests me, and I'd like to be able to do that. I also think it's a great place to look at novel therapies that hopefully will stop a vasoclusive. So we, we, we have meds, some. Uh, to help prevent vaso-occlusive uh, episodes, but we don't have anything to treat one once one has started. And so I, I would be very excited in using an infusion clinic network to look at some new therapies to do that kind of work. So I'm, I'm leading efforts here in our granddad registry. Uh, this is a disease specific registry for people with sickle cell disease that now is institutionally approved across over 50 sites in the United States where we're collecting really good phenotype data on people living with sickle cell disease. Would love it if we could do randomized control trials to answer all the questions we need to answer, but that's not gonna happen. Our colleagues who take care of people with cystic fibrosis have had a lot of success with their registry uh, in doing a lot of quality improvement projects to improve outcomes for people living with cystic fibrosis. And we're really modeling ourselves after the work that they've done So we're hoping to collect really good phenotype data, to really be able to collect a lot of good, real-world evidence about the therapies that we're using, and then to really do some quality improvement pieces to try to improve overall outcomes in care.
0: Yeah, I'm pleased you mentioned registries because high-quality disease registries, I mean, we can't always do double-blind, randomized controlled clinical trials, prospective clinical trials. Sometimes they're just not possible, and frankly, Sometimes they're not in the patient's best interest. So thank you for mentioning that. My final question for you, Sophie, if you came across a magical genie who would grant you three wishes in your area of healthcare or anything, frankly, what would those wishes be?
1: Oh, okay. Let's end racism. That would be number one. Structural racism has had a gigantic impact on our patients in particular. Yeah. and the way that they're cared for. So yeah, my magic genie could do that. That would be amazing. The second is that he should carry with him several billion dollars um, so that we could build the infrastructure to actually care for our patients and make sure that that there are comprehensive centers throughout the US uh, that meet the needs of, of patients with sickle cell disease. And my, my third third one, this one has to be healthcare. It can't be that my children should, should get married and be successful and all that. No, not that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, given, given that we, you know, it brings it full circle, Sophie. You mentioned that they were semi-adult, which I... cracked me up. I <laughs> and I thought, my goodness, are my children her children? It's just, yeah, there we go. So yeah. that cracked me up. Um, yeah. And as for your first point, my goodness, Racism is a disease. It truly is a disease and it kills people and it wounds people and it ruins the quality of life for for all of us. So yeah, bless you for saying that. Folks, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, Professor Sophie Landstrom, for giving us these fascinating insights into sickle cell disease, and also for everything you're doing for the patients living with this wretched condition.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: You're most welcome. Folks, please check out our archives. There's plenty of really fascinating uh, uh, episodes in there. Subscribe so you never miss a, a future one. And tell your friends and colleagues all about us. And please join me again next week for yet another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening. And please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.